the thought process was this. We need to make this title fight more about the drivers and less about the team principles. And the press conference was the first time that we'd had Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton in the same room. So I thought, yeah, I think it's fair to talk about what might happen on the opening lap. So I put the question to both of them, except that I didn't because Max interrupts me and then really tells me to F off. How about that? I did notice. I mean, you, you, you asked the question. I mean, you had to ask the question in a way, but um, you know, why, 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 why do you want to know about things to do with two drivers fighting for a world championship? You know, Tom, what's, why, what motivates you to ask these oh, very rude, in, in, intrusive questions <laughs> to, to drivers in the public domain like that, doing your job and everything? But anyway, you upset him, didn't you? You've, you I really did upset have. him. And then, because he was effing and being and all that kind of thing, I thought, oh, I, I better apologise for that. But if I apologise immediately, he's just probably going to eff and be again. So I thought, I'll do it right at the end. So at the end, I go, um, just like to apologise for some of the language. And as I was saying that, Max was walking past me and goes, don't apologise for my language. Well, he didn't apologise for himself, did he? <laughs> so I was like, oh, so, God, goodness like, well, me. I mean, it's a nice way to keep the weekend <laughs> off, wasn't it? You know, just being basically told. <laughs> to F off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but do you know what? The thing about Max is he, he does, I think, blow up quite easily but then it diffuses very quickly always with him actually yeah. and as he was walking out of the room he did say oh no it's not your fault tom and then that was the last i heard i have some sympathy for him tom i i have sat there being asked the same question over and over and over again and of course he's had a two weeks of it and a lot on social media of course you know so you start you want to start a new chapter you come into a race weekend the first question you get is about the race that happened two weeks ago. Well, the thing is, pre-race, it was the only story in town, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and now we've got a new story. We have got a new story, haven't we? My goodness, we have. We've got several. We have quite a few. I mean, it's a f it was a fantastic F1 weekend that just produced all the things that F1 can do. And it, it does on a regular basis. When I say regular, I mean at least once a year. It'll do have a crazy race where all kinds of extraordinary things happen. Of course, I've been in one at Hungary myself. People turned on and saw me in an arrows leading a Grand Prix. It does that. Hungary has those moments. But that was a classic. Well, let's press on. You're right, Tom. Let's press on with the F1 Nation podcast. Welcome, everybody, to this week's edition. Lights out and away we go. And Hamilton does get away very well indeed. Bottas doesn't. Verstappen's already nearly alongside him. And there goes Lando Norris down the inside. It is Hamilton ahead of Verstappen. Bottas has dropped three or four places. And there's Lando Norris touched. And into each other goes Valtteri Bottas and Sergio Perez. And Max Verstappen, I think, has gone tumbling down the order. Yeah, Max Verstappen has got caught out with that. DH, that was the craziest race since... Since uh, Mont Montreal. Oh, Silverstone. <laughs> <laughs> what was going on? I have to say, I couldn't tune in live very easily because I had to drive my FW18 at Silverstone, the Silverstone Classic, 10 minutes past two o'clock. So the start had already happened. But my son had my phone, so I was watching it on my SkyGo thing on my phone, and there was a car on the grid and everyone else was in the pits. And my head is going, what is going on? 
And it was the most extraordinary sight. That is going to be an enduring image for all time, isn't it? Lewis Hamilton on his own, on his little lonesome, on the grid, and everyone else going, the, going into the pits. Extraordinary. I mean, the whole build-up was extraordinary, DH, because I think you had wet weather in your FW18 at Silverstone, did yeah, you? It, was, it had been ra- wa- well, waning. It had been waning a lot, and um, <laughs> and it was starting to dry out. Thankfully, because I was running the the FW18 um, Williams Heritage, gave me the opportunity to drive my car again, which I had done at the Silverstone Grand Prix, which was thirty degrees temperature and bright blue skies. But the Silverstone Classic was damp. But another fantastic opportunity to run that car that twenty five years ago won the championship in. But at Hungary, it had started dry and then started to spit as i understand it half an hour before the race it felt like it was similar conditions to silverstone because uh, overnight rain the f3 support race was wet and drying at 10 30 on race morning and then it stayed dry got very hot at lunchtime and then suddenly the clouds come in as the i mean the cars left the pit lane to go to the grid on dry tires and then it rained did we get any lewis hamilton radio communication to mercedes so that we know what the conversation was because he's obviously gone around to the grid and decided if i come in now then i'm going to either start everyone else is going to go to the grid and i'll start last on a set of slicks but if i come in and everyone else comes in i'm not going to be able to get out of my pit to join the queue so i'll start at the back anyway so you're talking about the restart, not of the original start. Of course, I'm starting. Start, right? I mean, they're just yeah, exactly. The original start, of course, was the original pure start was wet. definitely yeah. Inters. Yeah, it was yeah. definitely Inters. And well, why don't we do it in chronological order? Because the original start was definitely Inters. I had an amazing vantage point. Actually, I was opposite Hamilton and Bottas on the front row. Hamilton made a great start. Bottas just lit up the rear tyres. Um, he always makes bad starts from P2 on the grid in Hungary, doesn't he? And he did it again here. Max Verstappen immediately dives past him. And so I was immediately, and I was going, oh, that conversation with Max on <laughs> <laughs> after qualifying. But how's it going to play out? But then, of course, um, Bottas took it out of everyone's hands. Skittles. Um, it's, a, it's a word that comes to mind, isn't it? I mean, you know, pin-pin bowling, wasn't it, the first corner? Yeah. Uh, but on the onboard of Esteban Ocon's, is extraordinary, isn't it? Because <laughs> he's going to turn in. Everyone else has already crashed. So we've got um, Lando's been T-boned by Valtteri. And, and then he's crashed into Max. And then everything's going left. And obviously Esteban's tucked down the inside. And then suddenly Lance Stroll goes flying past his nose cone straight into, I don't know who else he hit. Was it Was it Stroll? It was Stroll. Sorry, it's just Stroll goes past. Yeah, and hits Stroll a Esteban, I mean, was so lucky not to have got clobbered there. I mean, that was pure luck, that was. And then he's suddenly sailing into the into the open track in front of him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you couldn't have made it up, could you? Valtteri Bottas, fighting for his Mercedes career, takes out both Red Bulls at the start of the well, race. Is that, um, is, was that in his contract? You, know, cha- you, can, you can ask that the, yeah. next, <laughs> the next race. That can be your, your first question. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm going to make it a weekly occurrence <laughs> to get told to F off by Formula One drivers. Oh, God. I mean, everyone's saying, Damon, that he was so close behind Norris yeah. that he lost a lot of no, front no, downforce. No. Uh, and that's why he ran it, rammed him up the back. It looked to me as if Lando was quite conservative on the brakes, brake quite early. No. But equally, no, that's what you, you do. Isn't it? It's a wet race. They're going diving down into the first corner on the first lap. 
you've got to give yourself a little bit of space. And I think Valtteri just got caught out when Lando started to brake. Either he, his brakes weren't hot and he went for the brake pedal and they didn't work originally, uh, you know, initially, because that can happen too. So you kind of hit it and it doesn't initially bite. So you get a little bit of skiddy on the, on the first application of the, the brakes and then they start to warm up. But by then you've gone a car length too deep. And anyway, he's, whatever reason, he's misjudged and gone into the back. How long does a bad start play on your mind? Because he's made that bad start. And do you think he's angry with himself and, and maybe took his eye off the ball? I don't know how it plays out in the cockpit. It is awful. I mean, it's awful. When you, made a, when you make a complete pig's ear of something like that as a racing driver, you are desperate for the next race. So you can put it behind you. You just got to get onto recovery mode and get, you know, get a good result behind you. But of course, you've got this thing now sort of hanging out. He's got the whole summer break. Uh, to have this thing uh, sort of in the back of his mind. And of course, decisions are going to be made about his future, we're told. Uh, it could be a tough summer there for Valtteri, and you do feel for him um, for that, because it's not much fun. I've been there. It's not nice. Red flag flies, debris absolutely everywhere. So many of the front runners taken out. You know, Max Verstappen, OK, he's able to continue, but he loses the barge board on the right-hand side of his car. Christian Horner, after the race, talking about the mechanics in the pit lane, having to straighten piping and things like that. Worried about the new engine that they'd installed on Saturday may have been damaged. So are they going to have to take an engine penalty down the road? That's Max Verstappen's car. Sergio Perez taken out on the spot, can't take any further a start. And then, of course, Lando Norris taken out. I mean, just an extraordinary start. So they're all lining up in the pit lane and we have a half hour break while everything is is tidied up. They then get back in their cars. And this is where Mercedes made their error, because it was obvious to I thought all of us that the track was dry enough for dries. And yet every single car left the pit lane on intermediates. Why one of the sort of midfield runners or yeah. guys at the back, why they didn't roll the dice and put slicks on? I've got no idea, but that's the mistake that Mercedes made. And then the cars are coming round to the grid and everybody except Lewis Hamilton comes into the pit lane and <laughs> Lewis is on the grid on his own. It was, it was, it's, it's lonely at the it, top, Tom, isn't it? It was Indianapolis 2005, it but even, even funnier. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't funny if you're actually doing it. I would think it, was, it would be very disconcerting. But, okay, so everyone's come in, right? Well, the first point you made was, why didn't they go to the grid on a set of slicks? No one took that gamble, which seemed to you to be obvious. And the moment they got round on the parade lap, you had George Russell going, it's a no-brainer, is what he said. You've got to be on slicks. So he came in along with everybody else, except for Lewis. So Lewis has kept Sturm on the way round. Presumably he hasn't sort of gone, this is going to go, This is I, I could do this on slicks now. But why did they not go to the grid on a set of slicks then? And no one did that. If you thought it was going to be that dry... Why did no one take that gamble? You'd think that someone like Haas would have done it. I had a, a good vantage point high up. And the wonderful thing about the Hungaro ring is that it's a bowl. You can see so much of the racetrack from one vantage point and it just looked dry as they found out when they were going back to the grid. They need you in the grandstand all the time. I mean, I what, why, how much you could earn a could just 100 quid, a call or something like that. Spotter. <laughs> <laughs> When we got, always got beaten by, by Michael Schumacher at Spa because he knew when it was going to rain. 
I mean, I think he just had some bloke, you know, downwind in, in Liège or something like that, going, I can see it's coming and it's going to be there in a minute, you know, because he knew precisely when it was going to rain. So you do, that's all you need. You don't need meteosats and God knows what. You just need a bloke a few miles down the road in all directions. Well, the direction the wind's coming from. So that iconic image of, of Hamilton on his own, Toto Wolff has stood by that decision not to pit at the end of that formation lap. And he's probably right because the disadvantage of being the first pit box is that you pit, but then you've got 19 other cars coming past you and you can't then pull yeah, out unsafe release back into the fast lane. So by Mercedes calculations, there was a, a gap after five cars have come through. So if they'd made a very quick pit stop, they may have got him out in sixth. But worst case scenario was 10th, they think. So as it was, he rejoined in 14th, but having made his pit stop at the end of that opening lap. I challenge you to be on in the front of a queue and decide you're going to go back down to the halfway down the, the queue because it will be better in the long run. You know, that's a huge thing to get over in your mind to actually give up the lead position. But so they, they've left him on the grid. And my question is this, because he pitted immediately after one lap. How far could he have gone on intermediates before he decided to pit? And how much would he have lost? Because if he'd carried on going on intermediates, yes, he would have been slow and he would have been overtaken, but the pack would have spread out. So when he pitted, he may have lost fewer places because of the natural stringing out effect of the early laps of a race than he would have done if he'd come and straight into the pits and had to sit and wait and queue before he could get into the pit lane. I think there was the assumption that he would have made faster progress through the back markers than he actually did. And actually, Damon, you're actually raising a really good point in that I think the DRS zones in Hungary were the perfect length because I'm sure we're going to get on to talk about it. But all of the on-track battles, there was lots of old school defending. There was no breeze pass, normal DRS pass where it's unchallenged. They were just long enough so that the car behind could get close, but the car in front could defend and stay ahead, as we saw so beautifully from Fernando Alonso. But that's what made Hamilton's progress through the field so hard, but gave us, the viewers, such a great race. Uh, I mean, I, I like that little, um, the little DRS after turn one. I thought you needed a much longer straight for it to work, but it actually worked quite well there. It gave people a, a real good second stab. And we saw some absolutely yeah. brilliant riding around the outside moments there, didn't we, on turn two, partly because of the DRS, but, but not, not always. I mean, it was just great racing all the way through the field and great defending as well. You said a moment ago that it, how hard it is when you're the first car to roll the dice and come into the pits. Well, imagine what was going through Esteban Ocon's head. He was lying P2 and yet they still pulled him in. Must yeah. have been a very difficult pill for him to swallow, to give up. What, you know, he didn't know what was going to happen when he came out. And yet it was bang on the right decision. Uh, mm. And to be fair mm. to Alpine, they were sharp, so sharp all race yesterday. You know, you could forgive them for being a bit rusty. They hadn't won a Grand Prix since Melbourne 2013. Yet they did two 2.3 second pit stops. The strategy was bang on. Really, really impressive performance by then. Like I was saying in the pre-Hungary podcast last week, Tom. Yeah, you fancied a bit of Alpine, didn't you? I did, didn't I? I did mention yeah, I think Alpine. you might have mentioned I it. I didn't go so far as to say they were going to win the race. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a bit of a stretch. But anyway, a bit of a shock. But that, uh, yeah, they were, looking, they were looking good anyway, weren't they? Whatever. I mean, 
all first lap crashes aside, they were actually looking quite racy this weekend. They were eighth and ninth on the grid, which has become their sort of natural position, I think, in the last few races. Well, for Alonso anyway, the extraordinary thing about Ocon is that you've only got to go back a couple of races and he qualified 17th in Styria and Austria, makes a little mm. bit of progress with a new chassis at Silverstone, but still a few question marks. Yeah, well, what is the story about the chassis? Because I, I mean, it does seem to have suited him now. I mean, we've had a couple of chassis stories this year, haven't we? With, uh, was it Lewis getting a different chassis or getting a chassis back? Yep. Teams always insist they're all exactly the same and they can't find any difference. And then someone gets a new chassis and suddenly all the problems have gone away. Yeah. Or is it all psychological, Dame? Because they aren't, you know, they can x-ray them. They can look at whether there's any stress. But sometimes they maybe come out of the mould slightly wrong. I'm going to be, you know, shot down by engineers saying, people in the autoclave saying, no, they're all perfectly standard and exactly the same but they can't be they can't be exactly the same they're all going to be slightly different well i had a long argument with toto wolf about this at the french grand prix earlier this year but that's another story but let's talk about ocon damon because his is an extraordinary story you know his parents sold their house to fund his karting career Okay, he makes it through mm. the junior formulas on the, on the Gravity Driver Development Programme. Gets into Formula One with Mana in 2016. Then goes to Force India. Then has to sit out a year in 2019. He becomes the Mercedes test driver. And then had a difficult year alongside Daniel Ricciardo last year. And bam, he's gone and won a race. Just won the Hungarian Grand Prix. Well done, mate. Wow, 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 wow. Alien pin, Alien Bleu. Yes, yes. It was an inch perfect drive. Sebastian Vettel said after the race that he made no mistakes. And just a wonderful performance by him. The front page of L'Equipe on Monday was just a picture of him on the front, as they did with Pierre Gasly when he won at Monza last year. You know, think of all the other sport that's going on in the world at the minute with the Olympics, and yet they dedicate the front page to Esteban Ocon, and he's getting messages from Emmanuel Macron congratulating him as well. It's yeah, it's a big deal, isn't it? I mean, you know, French team. I've been recently approached by BRM who are doing some celebration of uh, winning the um, British driver in a British car and the BRM and my dad in 1961. So, you know, but the point is that is huge. You know, sport has got a national element to it, a dimension to it. So they're very, very proud of, of clearly proud of that they've got their French team and French driver winning. It's good. They're back. The French are back. I haven't heard from Alain. I, I didn't see where, whether he was there. Alain Prost wasn't but, uh, in Hungary, but he was very okay. quick to congratulate Ocon and Fernando Alonso who, let's face it, certainly helped him win that Grand Prix. Yes, um, well, played a very important role. But I mean, not just, I'm not sure whether it was all to do with a team. It was just, he loves racing, doesn't he? And he was actually trying to hang on to his position. But it clearly defended Ocon and also Sebastian Vettel from Lewis, a charging Lewis Hamilton, who was, 
some ridiculous amount of seconds per lap quicker, wasn't he? Because I, I kept looking at him. It looked like he took three seconds out of them all in one, in one lap one time. Mm, it was extraordinary. Now, look, while we're talking Alpine, we've got a guy in the waiting room who has driven for them. He was their test driver back in 2003. He also has an intimate knowledge of Honda because he was their test driver as well uh, prior to that. Shall we let Alan McNish, also a three-time winner of Le Mans, and he was in Hungary. So he'll have a good handle on it all. Should we let him in, DH? We've got to let him in. Get him in now, quickly. Hello. There he is. We've just done the big intro. The big intro. We nearly <laughs> called you Elaine McNish then. <laughs> How long ago was it you've been to a Grand Prix? Uh, nearly two years, actually. No, really? Gosh. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, at the end of 19, because last year with COVID, didn't go to any. And with all the clashing commitments and things, and this was the first one this year. It's very interesting to see the cars live on track, though, as well, because they're bloody impressive. Now, you came into the waiting room, Alan, just as we were starting to talk about Fernando Alonso, a former teammate of yours, no less. How impressed were you by his race tactics yesterday? I don't think you forget your tactics. I think you forget the subtleties of it. And speaking to him afterwards, he said that was the thing that he struggled with at the beginning of the season, just the finesse of being able to deliver them. You know, the theory, the strategy, like he did at the first corner when he made a small mistake, he packed up Lewis so that Lewis couldn't get a real run on him. You know, that's stuff that's just inside and clearly inside him. But what I was impressed with was his overview very early on about how his race was going to impact on Ocon. And how he, in my view, I don't know whether Damon or yourself agree, but in my view, he won the race for Ocon. Right. Yeah, we also we heard something similar, didn't we, Tom, from um, from George Russell saying, you know, uh, I, I'm not going to get anywhere here. You know, make sure you focus on Latifi as well early in the race. But guys, I want to bang on a bit more about Alonso's defence of Hamilton. He kept him at bay for 11 laps. Yeah, I know. 11 laps. Carlos Sainz, one lap. He was on older tyres. We've got to remember the tyre ageing and things like that. He was on older tyres. And I think clearly at that point, Carlos had had to struggle like mad to keep him behind for a long period anyway, because Lewis was behind him before he pitted. The thing that I just saw with Alonso was the fire, that energy. You know, it was 18 years ago in Hungary when he won his first ever Grand Prix. I think we were all there. And uh, to see that energy and fire and drive is Blooming impressive because you know what it's like when you've been in a game for a long time, especially at a high level, it, that kind of goes off and goes out of your system a little bit. But it certainly hasn't for him. He's still out there swinging like he's 21 years old. I, I can't believe it's gone out in you, Alan. You know, I'm sure that you still got a little bit of fire in you, haven't you? You know, <laughs> if put you in that situation, I don't think you'd give an inch at all. <laughs> Only if I was racing you then. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, have you two raced each other before? Uh, we sort of we sort of like, uh, only very briefly, I think it was 3,000. We 3, spent 000, most of our time. Yeah, yeah Formula 3,000. But, um, you know, I was going to mention the corner, is it turn one, two, three, four, the fast left at Hungary, where Lewis, where he went to go for the outside and Fernando, you know, he had to, it was almost a mirror opposite replay of a cops and Verstappen. He had to kind of take a bit of a line and then Lewis didn't like it and he got on the radio afterwards and said, 
that was a bit dangerous. Well, I mean, you know, Lewis put himself in that position, didn't he? You're on the outside, especially there, because as you know, the road kinks very slightly right before it goes left. And uh, clearly, if you're on the outside, you're on the risk point and it can go wrong because ultimately, if they move across, you touch, you're, you're going into the boonies. Uh, there, I thought that was pretty risky from Lewis because it was something I thought at this point in the race, his main competitor in the World Championship was basically in the very, very low points. He was in a position where he could finish potentially on the podium, but maybe not. But in the overall picture of the World Championship, the swing that went from Silverstone, where he was, what, 30-odd points behind going in, to suddenly could be coming out of this race in the lead, or risk it with a very, very forceful Fernando Alonso. I think there, there was a point where, and I must admit, I wasn't brilliant at this, taking a breath and thinking bigger picture as opposed to very narrow picture. That's your team manager hat on, isn't it? You're looking yeah. at it and going, now, think about the points, please, boys, you know. Yeah. So you, you've made that transition from racing driver to to looking at the team and, and, and the responsibilities that you have as, you know, to your employers and uh, manufacturers and God knows what. So uh, and we were talking earlier with Tom about how this uh, battle between Red Bull and Mercedes has got a bit centric around the team bosses. What's your feeling about that? Do you think that it should be about the driver's rivalry or is, is, is that part of the entertainment as well as the, the head banging between the, the team principals? You know, at the end of the day, there are two personalities, Christian Horner and Toto Wolff are strong personalities and they're, they are driving the team forward for their own benefit as well as uh, ultimately their team's benefit. And I think it, it, you can't just separate the two of them. I think there is a point, though, where the animosity can actually have a detrimental effect inside the team, uh, in your own team as well, because all of the energy is then round about the coffee machine or when they're having lunch or when they've just finished their debrief meetings or even on Thursday, and Max Verstappen brought this up, I think, with you, Tom, unfortunately, in the press conference. Yeah, um, yeah, we've just talked about that as well. <laughs> Yeah, but it is, I can understand Max's point in this situation because he has been talking about this whole scenario with every single person from the Thursday through. But that's the prerogative of the media. It's a prerogative because that is the story and it was the story of the weekend up to the race. But at the same time, the team sometimes, in my view, need to actually take a step back and remember what the focus point is, which is the race. Not this argument, because that's previous points and you can't gain them back once they've gone. It's about, right, how do we get our team focused on the game? And I think there, Mercedes were able to have Toto doing his bit, but then underneath it, the team, I think, prepared better for Saturday in qualifying than maybe Red Bull did. Well, and Red Bull was struggling with performance, weren't they? Because on Saturday morning, they had to, to change the engine, first of all. Then they put the smaller rear wing on because they couldn't get enough front in the car so enough front end so they were on the back foot and then Mercedes ah oh, Q3 we haven't talked about Q3 that gamesmanship at the start of the final run think back over this weekend there's so much that happened wasn't there starting with obviously with Tom's, uh, Tom's can we press stop conference. talking and about then, that you know, uh, will you uh, we're alright okay. well, actually it's not me okay. bringing okay. it it's not me bringing it up <laughs> is it <laughs> <laughs> no, McNish brought this up. <laughs> You're right. No, that was, and then and then the booing because you know there was a there's a Lewis had to deal with quite a lot that weekend because I mean I think some people thought that his tactic there of 
backing up was a tactic. And then you asked him the question about, the, about whether it's a tactic. And he said, no, it's not. I don't play tactics, man. You know, so, uh, yeah, it was quite a lot that weekend. Was, but the, the Mercedes have moved forward and they've actually surprised and I think slightly depressed Red Bull with their sudden gain in performance, which they weren't expecting. I wasn't expecting. No one was expecting. A real momentum shift. But, OK, if we're going to talk about Max's PR I think you give the guy a half volley and you say to him, can we get your thoughts on the booing? And it would have been very easy for him to say, yeah, guys, can we not do that? Okay, I really appreciate the Orange Army and and the support, but let's um, let's show some respect to every driver on the grid. He could say that, but he chooses not to. He could say when you ask him about first time him and Lewis have been together in a room since Silverstone, you ask them about the first lap. He could just say something benign and and just batted away but no he starts effing and being and and lewis was definitely surprised lewis had a smile behind his mask as max was saying all that think i think lewis was thinking oh i've got to him here i've got to him this is one nil for to lewis hamilton i agree with you but i think we're looking at this as an isolated incident and i can just tell you if i go back in my driving career i won le mans in 98 and i led every single le mans that I raced in until I won it the second time and also then until I won it the third time. But in between that first and second time, the media, and it was also amplified by our own PR company, our own internal PR, was saying, ah, when will he win the next one? And it created this sort of big question mark and then everybody else started talking about it. And eventually I had to go to them and say, stop it, because the amount of bloody energy I'm spending trying to answer a question that I'm trying to answer myself is when am I going to win it? Because I think I can, and I know I can, but it's just not happening. And the frustration is there. And I think there we've got to sort of take a little bit step back and remember these guys are fighting for a world championship. And it's not just the physical on track, it's the mental off track. And there, yeah, it could have been done a little bit better. There is no question about it. But Max does wear his heart in his sleeve on track and off track, as you found out with your question. But, but Alan, it's it's not possible. Is it? I mean, it's not fair because Tom's got a job to do, and it's not fair. Yeah. To, to, it's not it's not realistic. It, let's say to enter into this sport or any sport that's in that's got a huge following, and not expect people to ask the awkward question. You're going to get probed. People are going to probe into your private life. They're going to probe into your business deals. They want they want to know everything about you, you know, and that is the nature of being in the limelight. And, uh, you know, I think that maybe Max is struggling. Perhaps he wants to have a quiet life and just race his cars. Well, Lewis has had, he's had that introduction from a very early age and he's dealt with it and he's learned to deal with the media. And I think maybe he's more adept at dealing with it now than, than, than he was certainly what he was. But this is another skill that professional sports people have to learn and, you know, not to be riled by being asked the same question over and over and over again, even though you want to, you know, scream sometimes. Again, with my team principal hat on, I would go to our internal PR and say, right, what is, going to happen now we need to protect our driver and to make sure he's got a strategy to be able to achieve it as well because you know you can't just set the driver out there to be the target you've got to give him a little bit of support and defense behind and i think there could have been a little bit more done in that area because i agree with you it's not tom's got the right and every media's got the right to ask the question the driver has got the right not to answer it but he's also if he does answer it i think yes got to be polite 
And unfortunately, in this one, it wasn't quite the occasion. Um, it didn't work out that way. But I do think there, you know, you can look to the support mechanism behind them as well and think hmm, maybe that could have been beefed up a little bit more. A couple of races ago, I was getting some grief from people on social media about my pronunciation of Verstappen. Is it Verstappen or Verstappen? So I said to Max, Max, can you just clear something up for me? Is Are you Verstappen or Verstappen? And, he, and then I explained why I was asking the question. And he goes, why do you give a shit what people say? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, I said, what's the answer? He said, I don't care what you, how you pronounce it. What, what does it matter? And, and that's quite an insight into his attitude towards the whole thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we, we all know Jos. And Jos... <laughs> His father is, is it you know, the cut. <laughs> <Is it Josh? laughs> the big J, we call him the big J. The boss. <laughs> and, you know, they're cut from the same cloth. And, uh, and certainly in that respect, I don't think they really care too much. They're, you know, his job is to go out and win races. And that's as well a little bit Red Bull's mentality. You know, it's not necessarily to be on the front of fashion magazines and things like that. It's basically... Helmut Marko hires him for one job and one job only, go and win a world championship. Now, Alan, can we talk to you about Honda as well? You've just told mm. us that you haven't been to a race for two years. How impressed have you been by, by the development and progress that they've made? Oh, very impressed because, you know, you remember back to the first Grand Prix when they came back into Formula One, people were talking about you know, the Halicon days of McLaren and Honda. And I don't think one car even got to the to the grid because they blew up in the formation lap, if my memory is correct. But there they were referenced as a GP2 engine. It was unreliable. They had, you know, 80 grid place penalties every single race. They were starting in a different country. They were so far back. And to have done a few things, one, to have changed teams. So the commitment of Red Bull and Alpha Tauri to go that way, they must have saw something. Now, maybe they didn't have many other options, but certainly they must have saw something. But then for the progressive development in the constraints of, I would say, the Red Bull design, because definitely it is a balance between trying to make sure you get your cooling capacities, but that's negative to aero and weight and weight distribution and everything else is all very, very important. And uh, for them to be able to work hand in hand with Red Bull principally to be able to achieve it. And then secondary with, with Alfatori, I think blooming impressive. The biggest thing, though, is they're just getting it right and they're pulling the plug and leaving. And if they don't get the championship this year, they will maybe win the championship with the engine in the future, but it will not be the Honda program that we know. And that's what I'm struggling to understand, Damon. Well, you've you spent some time with them, so I'm, I'm hoping you can shed yeah. some light on, on why do they do this? Because it seems like they're always half in, half out of Formula One. I mean, they have had some fantastic spells where they've come in and they've dominated with, with Nigel and stuff and with McLaren. But, you know, so they were there at the right time, the right place, and then they left. But they've got this recent habit of kind of fully investing and then deciding, oh, no, we've changed our mind. We want to go the other direction. If you go back to the late 80s, early 90s, when they were really dominant. And they had a really good test driver back then, didn't they? Right. I think they had a few good drivers around back then, don't you, Damon? <laughs> I, 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 I had nothing to do with their success whatsoever. But I mean, You were through the Williams and developing through that period, weren't you? Oh, you're talking about Willi uh, with, yeah. with the Renault engine. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's all down to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do, yeah. So. Alan, didn't you spend a lot of time at Suzuka working with Honda? Oh, God, yeah. Just tell us a little bit about that. 
that was uh, about three, four days a week. Uh, sorry, yeah, there was about three, four day tests, and it was once per month over about eighteen months through nineteen ninety 1990 and nineteen ninety one. So I was a little Scottish kid that had uh, just signed this contract to to test for McLaren. I'd only ever been outside of Europe once, I think, and that was to Macau. And then suddenly I'm in Japan every month. And it was really, really cool because, you know, Suzuka is a beautiful circuit. I love it. It's my still my favorite. But you were out there doing various different things, predominantly the V12 development. But we also started on semi-automatic gearboxes, fully automatic gearboxes. There was an active ride program going on as well, parallel to it. And so there was a whole load of new technology and things coming from a point where we had such limited data. We've got to remember, this is a period where um, you basically were still not quite, but you were holding two pieces of paper up to the light to try to see the differences with two laps. But it was right at the beginning of data and data understanding. I learned a hell of a lot. I enjoyed it massively. I fell in love with Japan, even though I've never raced a championship in Japan, fell in love with the place. And at the end, you know, Senna and Berger were the two drivers I was listening to and learning from, wearing on the first test Alan Prost's overalls because they didn't have any small enough to fit me. <laughs> <laughs> but you must have learned a lot about Honda's work ethos back then. And so what you just described about the progress since 2015 can't come as a surprise. No, it can and it can't, because I think back then there was a big difference. Old man Honda, Mr. Honda was still alive. And he, for example, wanted a V12 because Ferrari had a V12 and he wanted a V12. And whether that was right, wrong or indifferent, they were going to build a V12 and they were going to make that V12 win. And uh, so in that respect, there was definitely a complete drive from one person above down and no one questioned it. Everybody just focused 100% through everything needed to make that happen. And they had another system as well where they would have engineers coming into the racing program for a period of time and then going back into road car production. So they were learning the mentalities of agility, speed of, you know, lateral thinking. And so it was a company philosophy. When he passed on, uh, then I think that was lost a little bit. And I think that leadership mentality of must win, must drive it forward became more of a sort of flat structure, like other, like Toyota, for example, where there were a lot of people on the same level and no one willing necessarily all the time to stick the flag in the sand and say, we must do this and now. And that's, I think, one, <clears throat> one of the biggest single differences. And at the same time, it has been very impressive that they've got it together. But I think that flag in the sand is maybe one year too late for them. Um, because, uh, like I said, they're on the verge of winning a world championship. Maybe will, maybe won't, but then they're leaving just at the point of getting it basically right. Did you ever meet old man Honda? No, Alan? unfortunately no. not. Met no. his son as you did, Damon, and uh, yeah. but uh, never. Yeah. I went to the museum, which was underneath. Remember the bowling alley at Suzuka Circuit? Well, yeah. they had the kind of private museum there before they built Montegi Place and everything and went in there, and the first car that he worked on was in there, all the old motorbikes, a Honda 404, which was one of my father's motorbikes in the, in the mid-late 70s, 754, which was, funnily enough, my first motorbike. All of these things were, it was just stunning, but it just showed that it was clearly driven by one man's passion and focus. 
And I think you, I think we need that. I, I do believe we need that in motorsport. Uh, you need to have some people that will just commit because of what's in their heart as opposed to what the boardroom sort of jointly agree on because it's a good return on investment. And uh, this is what makes business sense because sometimes motorsport doesn't always make business sense. Not in a piece of paper. Where's this bowling alley at Suzuka? Damn it. Suzuka Circuit Hotel. If you go... Oh, is it near the log cabin? I only know the log cabin. You've never been aware of the other side of anything. Log cabin is fantastic after 10 o'clock at night until 10 o'clock in the morning. The Suzuka Circuit Hotel at the far end has got a, a bowling alley, which is for people that actually go to bed at night. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I don't go to bed at night. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Jet lag. Is it jet lag? Yeah, that's yeah. It. That's it's the difference. Hey, actually, how did you deal with the jet lag? I always think the jet lag in Japan is awful. And if you're doing a monthly trip, where were you? You must have been somewhere, I don't know, what, Middle East for most of the time? Yeah, I was young. I was 19, 20. I didn't, didn't know anything about it. I just... Um, I would actually arrive the day before the test, test, and then we would go back to Tokyo. And as I said, I was very young, very days. And uh, you go back to Tokyo, go to a nightclub. I don't believe it. Pack your bag and then go straight to the flight. And then I, I slept all the way home. And that was my jet lag reduction yeah, sort of system. Yeah. But it was, uh, it was a very, very different time. There was no English signs at all anywhere. So I actually had this printed out uh, sort of thing that with the Japanese symbols when I was arriving into Narita, the train I needed to get to get into Tokyo, how to then get on the subway to go to Central Station, then to go to Nagoya on the Shinkansen, what it meant, which carriage, all of these different things. And it was like the idiot's guide to trying to travel through Japan at the time. But it was super fun. I love this sort of Harry Potter image of Alan McNish wandering around uh, Tokyo with, like, with a ticket yes. on him, with a, a label saying, please deliver to Suzuka Circuit. <laughs> I was thinking more Paddington there. But it was, oh, it was an education. There's no question. The whole, that's, yeah, the whole thing was an education. Alan, it's half term in Formula One. Just top five drivers of the season so far. Go on. I think you've got to say Max has stepped up. Without question, uh, is this in order? Is this is he your number one? No, 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 no. It's not necessarily in order because I'm thinking on the on the fly here. I would put George Russell, even though in the race that he scored points, he unfortunately scored behind his teammate. But I would definitely put George up there. Pierre Gasly, because he's found his mojo again and he's been able to drag things out of him that I believed was there before, but uh, with the Red Bull time you would never have thought was in it. I think Lewis, because he's up against such a determined fight, at halftime, I just want to see how he continues because for him, this is a mental battle, in my opinion, because he knows what it takes to win a World Championship. He also knows that his time's running out to win more. And for Max, there's a little bit more flexibility on the timing that he's got to be able to achieve this. And so that mental fight of Lewis, even although there's been a couple of cracks in the armour, like in Azerbaijan at the restart, you know, just at the weekend, you know, the maybe the lack of commitment to come in on the warming up lap, so being the sole car sitting on the grid, you know, a few of these areas, maybe a couple of little cracks, but, you know, at such a high level. How many is there? You need one more. I think I think there's one glaring omission. Alonso. Yeah, I've got to. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be Fernando. And it has to be because of his age. And because of that energy and the weekend just showed what he's still all about. And not, not necessarily 
because of his speed, but just the, what he does, because at the end, Ocon struggled a little bit against him. And you would think with everything, Ocon should have been a little bit higher. But I think Fernando's just absorbed the team to him. And uh, that aspect to it is a pain in the backside if you're a teammate. It's a bit of a pain in the backside if you're a team boss, but it's what has made him so successful in everything he's done, not just necessarily in Formula 1. DH, do you agree with Alan? I agree, except you have to have Landon Norris in there somewhere, and I don't know how you get what an extra one really? into into the five. So someone well, said, And what about Charles Leclerc? Yeah. Mm. Charles Leclerc is, you know... I mean, if you had to pick... The, the different question is, if you had to pick the top drivers of Formula 1... Uh, what five would be there. And it would have to have Charles Leclerc in there. It would have to have Max, Lewis. And then you're kind of, you're talking about the last two. Who are they? You know, and Lando, I think, has to be in there as well because I think that his performance has been stunning. Fernando is is a great, he's come into his own in a way because he's such a powerful force as a team player as well as, you know, a, an individual fighter. And what he can bring, the asset he can bring to a team is huge. The value he can bring to a team, even at 40, uh, he's shown he's he's just worth his weight in gold, really. Yeah, I, I've got to agree with you on the Lando. That was a that was a glaring omission. But at the same time, the thing that I like about Fernando is that he gives to all of us, Damon, a little bit of hope that we can maybe pull on a helmet and, and do something one of these days. <laughs> well, Alan, it's been great to chat. Do you have another five minutes or so? Because yeah. we have a section on the show called Ask Damon and uh, it would be fab to get your input into that as well. All right, question one. Dear Damon, Peter Heil here from Budapest. The very first F1 race I saw live was 1997 at the Hungaroring. I witnessed your incredible drive and your incredible bad luck. My question relates to your engine that day, the Yamaha F1 engine. As a biker, and an F1 driver, what do you think of your decision back then to drive with a motorcycle engine? Would you trust them again? Can a bike manufacturer produce a good F1 engine? The Porsche 919 that won Le Mans had a small capacity V4 not that far off from a MotoGP power unit, and it obliterated Hamilton's Spa lap record. Do you think we will see more engines of theirs fitted into F1 powertrains? Thanks again. Love the show. Looking forward to the next episodes. Well, interesting uh, proposition there that uh, maybe, you know, these motorcycle engines uh, are, are suited to Formula One. And, and what do I think about putting a mo motorbike engine in the back of the Arrows? I would say it's not, it wasn't actually a motorbike engine. It did have a Yamaha logo on it. But, but Alan, Alan uh, would be able to tell me more about the motorcycle engine, the Porsche. Did he, did he say it was a motorcycle engine in a Porsche? No, no what's that about? It's a four-cylinder. It was a four-cylinder. I think that's what it was going to downsizing on the actual number of cylinders because you were V10 with your Yamaha yeah. at that point. Yeah. And uh, since then, everything's just been downsized in terms of cubic capacities, number of cylinders. And I think that's the line that things are going, certainly on road cars and just generally technology is allowing it nowadays. But they tried to bring in, didn't they? Max Mosley wanted to bring in a standard, a, yep. a straight four engine, yep. didn't he, as a package? Yes, Look, we, we, we need to go to what is used in road use. So it's got to be mm. a four-cylinder engine. Mm. Um, and let's even talk about maybe bringing that in as the new standard, but turbocharged hybrid engine for Formula One. So we might see that. But, yeah. but the, the motorcycle engines are, of, they are in some uh, track cars. So like the Radicals yeah. use Hayabusa's or something, Suzuki's, I think. Area Latum as well, I think, does the same thing because they're small, torquey, light, and they produce plenty good power for the weight. Yeah, so they have already been 
put in uh, uh, Formula cars. Um, and so you know, but but for Formula One, the obviously the spec is set by the by the regulation. So they go to the maximum they can. And the engine I actually used was a originally was a Judd engine with some bits from Yamaha, and then it was badged by Yamaha. So it was tweaked up a little bit. And at Hungary, you didn't need, it's a bit like Monaco, you don't need a load of horsepower. You need a good drivable engine with some torque, but it's not extended periods of time at full throttle down a long straight. So, you know, it's, I think it's second to Monaco on the, on the percentage full throttle at Hungary. So you just need a good balance. And then you can put all that power down on the road where you need it and um, you do suffer on the straight a little bit more powerful motor but it's not motor dependent at Hungary so I was happy with my little Yamaha. I was there that day and uh, was speaking to Herbie Lash who was involved with the Yamaha program and I just remember everybody's elation that you could be just touching the I'm sorry to bring this up Damon touching the first Grand Prix victory for them, and also for Arrows as well, if I remember correctly. And uh, then suddenly the the sort of, it was like a balloon popping when it stopped and you were you were left, uh, not with the victory that you deserved. And to see everybody's face, I don't think the paddock would, anyone in the paddock would have been disappointed if you had won that race, that's for sure. No, it was, it would have, it was, I still get people talk about it as one of the most exciting races they watch. And I think because they mm-hmm. turn on the TV and they suddenly go, wait a minute, that's not right. A bit like we had this weekend with, with, you know, Esteban Ocon leading the race. And uh, so, you know, it, it did turn up a bit of a surprise. It wasn't more like a, a balloon popping. It's more like it was sort of slowly deflated because I came second. So it was, uh, I still had a little bit of air in the balloon, but not, <laughs> <laughs> not the first place. But um, you're right, poor old um, Jackie Oliver, who'd spent 350-odd races with arrows, came that close and within half a lap and uh, sadly didn't get to, to get his victory. But um, it was still a good performance, a good, good week. So it just shows you the right balance, right, you know, you get a good package. You don't need the, the best motor. You, you can still put in a good performance. Bridgestone tyres also helped. Nice one. Let's have our next question. Hey Damon, Oliver here from Australia. Obviously, there have been many F1 cars in the past, but which car in the history of F1 have you found the best looking? I personally like the RB8, the 2012 Red Bull. Just a livery with that era of F1 cars. Anyway, thanks. Hi Oliver in Australia. Good question. Aesthetics, important thing. We've just got the 2022 car coming through. A lot of discussion about what cars look like, you know, what turns people on. And some people prefer the old cars. You know, you go back to, let's say, the shark nose Ferrari, which is very distinctive. 1961 Ferrari it looked like a... Um, a sort of uh, like a lozenge with a, a shark. You know, like it had a kind of thing at the front, didn't it, Tom? A kind of radiator looked like it could have been called a kind of nostril Ferrari, but actually <laughs> they called it a shark nose. I think I know what car you're going to say is is the most beautiful. Well, uh, you're, you're, you think I'm going to say the FW18, aren't you? Yeah, yeah I do right. think that. So I do think that because I think it is, it is proportions <laughs> seem right to me as well. So the the arrangement between the the chassis and the and the the tire width and the and the dimensions I think are important. I didn't like the period we had when the cars were very narrow track. They just looked wrong to me. I mean, you know, they looked they looked like they were going to fall over. So the RB8, I think that um, Oliver was saying he liked. I probably would disagree with that. Alan, how about you? It's funny if I take the most beautiful car to drive is very different to the one aesthetically to look at. 
Um, for me to drive was the 23, 2003 Renault because it just did everything I wanted it to do. But to look at, it was that narrow track. It was groove tires. It was everything that aesthetically I didn't like at all. But I would rewind back to maybe something that was, again, I agree totally with Damon on proportions, a, a car, a meaty car that when you go up to it, it kind of frightens you a little bit. And you get into it for the first time and tighten the belts and you're hanging on. And uh, that would be the McLaren from 88, the turbo. Because there it was, you know, it was very, very low. It was very, very wide, huge rear tires. But you knew that just behind you, you had a rocket ship without all the finesse that's needed to control it. And uh, that for me was something that I actually never drove. I drove the, the following year car a lot, but uh, it was one that I looked at and just thought, yeah, I would love to be in it, but I'm not actually sure I would love to be in it. I think you have to include color scheme as well when you're looking at beautiful cars. And, and I, so I look at the Jordan 191, that green car, some beautiful lines, love that. But now you're talking Lotus Goldleaf, Special, aren't you? Yeah. You know, now you're... Gold Leaf? Yeah. John Player, maybe. John Player. Well, it was the same company, John Player. Not Gold Leaf. The Gold Leaf, sorry, yeah. So the the Gold Leaf, which my dad drove, which was uh, the 68 car, and then 68, 69. But then there was the, the, the Grand Fet, the Lotus, that um, the black and gold one, which was Mario Andretti's car and stuff. And they looked fantastic, didn't they? I mean, talking about colour schemes, you can't beat the black and gold one. Or you can go forward to some of the Brabham's. Yeah, the Martini colours. Yeah, you then see the clean lines. I suppose that's one of the things, it's an era point as well. It's what you grew up with aspiring to and sort of looking at and flicking through magazines or on the internet searching. And that's where I think I also would sort of fall into the, the sort of 70s and 80s because that's when I was starting to follow Formula One. Well, thank you, Oliver, for that one. Great question. Two great questions today. And I think this is the moment where we're going to lose Alan McNish. Alan, thank you so much for your time. It's great to chat. Yeah, good to see you guys again, uh, Damon, Tom. Thanks very much. And uh, hopefully see each other soon, maybe in the log cabin. <laughs> no, no, the bowling alley, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Thanks for coming. Well... Great to speak to Alan McNish again. Uh, it's incredible. I mean, it's got so much experience. I mean, so much of achievement in motorsport, you know, through Formula One and also Le Mans and everything and the other things he does. Yeah. I mean, he's full of useful information. I don't think we got all of it out yeah. of him, Tom. We'll have to get him back another time. <laughs> I think we need him back. But I love those Honda stories. Just imagine just pounding round Suzuka for four days at a time, developing all sorts of amazing stuff. He's a braver man than me, I can tell you, because Suzuka is, is not the, the first place I'd choose as a test track. <laughs> like every time I came away from there, I just thought, I'm lucky to be alive. Uh, it was it's very fast and not much runoff, but uh, what yeah. an experience, yeah. So anyway, Alan, thank you. Great to have you on the show. Now, one of the things we didn't talk about with him uh, and we didn't get to before he came on was Lewis Hamilton. Mm. I've never seen him look that tired, dear. Well, you know, he was tired after the British Grand Prix, wasn't he? Do you remember? He was on the podium looking a bit puffed. But I think that we thought that was because it was, you know, he'd had to battle through and it was a tough track and all that stuff. But um, clearly he is, and he's admitted that he's not managed to get back his full fitness after getting COVID last year in Bahrain. And he looked very wobbly on the podium, didn't he? When he, when he moved up 
to the top step to stand next to Ocon. Mm. And Ocon was, you could see, he sort of had his arm around him at one point, just yeah. sort of. Well, he got out the car and he was actually sort of hiding behind the little podium thing uh, just by his car. And he went over to his uh, physio. Angela. Angela. He was got out the car and went behind the podium and and knelt down for a long time. I thought he was praying or something, but he was clearly just trying to get his blood pressure back up. And he went over to Angela and she looked a bit concerned and gave him a bottle. And, you know, I think he must have been a bit dehydrated as well. But it's a tough track. I mean, Esteban Ocon did say, don't forget, this is a tough track and, and they're pushing on quite a bit. But it's taken it out of him, hasn't it? And there was a nice moment. He didn't go to the, the TV pen after the race. He just went and spent about half an hour cooling down. Uh, Dr. Luke, Luke Bennett uh, from Hintzer Performance was with him, looking after him. And then I was told prior to the press conference, please announce that Lewis won't be joining us, explain that he's suffering from fatigue and a, a little bit of dizziness, which I duly did. And then halfway through, Lewis appeared and he said he wanted to come and join the press conference to wish his mate Esteban Ocon well because of course they worked together in 2019 at Mercedes together and he was so thrilled for Esteban that he'd won that he wanted to share the moment with him so he's very um even when his back's against the wall like that still a uh, very human side to Lewis he was definitely out of energy you know he he burned it all up and it, and it's um we just hope and wish him well that you know he's got uh you know the ability to recover as soon as you can but it's taking is you know this long covid that we we've heard about you know i've heard other people talk about this and they've they've had covid and it's a year later it's still they still feel that they're not 100 percent. so it's a it's a nasty virus and uh, let's hope lewis is uh, can get full recovery from it yep the break has come at a good time and the run of races after this break is incredibly intense as well so he needs to be in tip-top form before we, we embark on that. And Damon, what did you make of Vettel yesterday? Started P10, made a rubbish start, but finished second. Yes, admittedly, his rubbish start helped him. <laughs> he was quick to acknowledge that. And a bit lucky to get through, as was Esteban, at the first corner and miss out on all the carnage. Pushed Esteban all the way, but wasn't able to really get on top of him I mean they're, they're clearly closely matched those cars and I think that that's that's very hard to to race against a car that's closely matched but he stuck with him the whole way but didn't manage to pull a move on him um, I think he was frustrated but, um, by that yeah I, mean, I think he was I think he would have woken up on Monday morning thinking what else could I have done it went a bit wrong, wrong with their pit stop, didn't it? They lost a bit of time in their pit stop for whatever reason. So yeah, there may have been that opportunity that slipped past, but I think Esteban also put in a pretty good lap on his outlap when he first pitted. So very frustrating sitting behind that close to a car and you can see it and you can, you can see if the guy's making a mistake. But all credit to Esteban, who you'd have to say is miles behind Sebastian Vettel in terms of leading Grand Prix experience. He didn't put a foot wrong. And that's what you need. I mean, when Lewis caught up with Fernando, the only way he could get past him was by pushing him so hard that he actually outcooked himself going into a corner. But Esteban never did that. And that's a long race to keep that pressure on. Vettel had to settle <laughs> for his second place. Or not, Damon. Or not, as we know. Yeah. As we know, after the race, they could only get uh, a third of a litre of fuel out of that Aston Martin when uh, the minimum requirement is one litre. And uh, there was a lot of stress, actually, at 9.15 on Sunday night. 
I went down into the paddock and happened to walk past the FIA garage and surrounded by Aston Martin mechanics. Otmar Safnauer was in there as well, pacing like an expectant father. Interestingly, a lot of the FIA guys in the garage were their software engineers. So I don't know what conclusions you can draw from that, but a lot of the software guys were in there looking at the car. Uh, of course, Aston Martin claimed that there's a fuel pump problem, otherwise they would have been able to get the uh, requisite amount of fuel out of the car. But the rule states that after the race, you have to be able to deliver one litre of fuel, which they weren't able to do. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans up in the appeal process. But as you and I speak now, Vettel has lost his second place, which must... Have you ever had... Did that ever happen to you? How gutting is it when you finish on the podium, really gruelling race like the Hungarian Grand Prix, and just as you get home, you get the bad news? I haven't had that. Um, maybe maybe someone who knows more about my career than I do can, can remind me <laughs> <laughs> if I've forgotten. But I don't seem to remember anything like that. Um, no, I don't think there was a car that was underweight or, you know, any kind of those shocking disappointments that you get a technicality that's beyond our control but um uh, they used to have all the time cars running out on the last lap i mean jack brabham famously lost god knows how many races by running out of fuel just before the line but these days it's, it's i'm trying to think how that happened how did he not end up assuming he hasn't got enough fuel and they don't find more in there but how did he not have enough because the race was, it was a pace and he also was behind a car in front. So you'd think he'd use less fuel than if he was breaking through the, the clean air. But um, uh, yeah, interesting. Don't know. Well, tough times for all the guys at Aston and for Seb, but the pace is there. They've, they're coming on strong. Uh, those guys, as are Williams, your old team, DH. Yeah, they did. Well, terrific performance to get points. I think uh, George was, was in tears, but of course he didn't get the best result from the team, but he was so happy for the team because he's clearly been knocking on the door and it's finally opened and he's broken the, his dark end and the team have broken the dark now and they've actually firmly established themselves as eighth in the championship. So that's worth a lot of money to the team, worth a lot to everybody, you know, puts a spring in their step, but then they're in, they are in a bit of a role with this team. And, and when you get some momentum and a lot of it has been down to George, when you when you get this momentum, good vibes, people want to work there, people want to work harder, people want to find out how they can go that next step up. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna get there, but it's a it's a hard game, Formula One. So, you know, they, they know they're not underestimating the difficulty, but it's definitely they've scraped themselves off the bottom, which is where they've been for a while. Do you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of Johnny Herbert winning Stewart's Grand Prix, only Grand Prix victory back in nineteen ninety nine, and Rubens Barrichello finishing on the podium as well but he'd been there from the beginning and it was gutting for Rubens that he wasn't the guy who got the win in the way that George wasn't the guy that got the main result there, no there's no there's no kind of um justice kind of um sort of karma thing that goes on happens. <laughs> <laughs> like bad luck can continue to happen to the same driver year in year out I mean Chris Amon famously never won a world championship and you know, there's plenty of drivers like Sterling Moss who never won a world championship, much as they should have done on, on all their results. It should say they, they got there. But um, there's nothing to say it can't get worse, Tom. And you learn that as a racing driver. 
But the irony of all this was that they'd had their worst qualifying of the year. George Russell knocked out in Q1 for the first time. Yeah, and where did Carlos Sainz start? So you never can tell, can you? That's the good thing. There's always a chance that something can happen that's positive. So keep your chin up all, all times. And Nicholas Latifi, can I plug, by the way, Damon, uh, this week's Beyond the Grid, sister podcast to this. We have Nicholas Latifi coming on Beyond the Grid. And um, he, he laid on a really decent drive, didn't he? Just as a the sort of build up for our podcast. I'm sure that's why you did it, Nicholas. Tremendous race to come home seventh running third at one point and we were all staring at the tv wondering how you, how we deal with that but drove a really strong race never looked out of his depth no. running at top end of the order and and he's got a fascinating story to tell actually as well well i'd be very interested as i'm always interested to hear your interviews tom so i'll be tuning into that one and learn more about because i don't know he's a bit of a kind of mystery man isn't he he's kind of not someone we know too much about uh, so I'll be keen to find out more. I mean, how he got into racing is fascinating. I'm not going to tell you now. Uh, have a listen on Wednesday, but it's it's a fascinating story. And he w he was really good uh, when fighting for for big points, and I think did his chances of staying at Williams next year a whole lot of good. Uh, Jos Capito caught up with him over the weekend, and he was saying that we don't need pay drivers next year, so we're in a really really strong position. Of course. Nicholas comes with funding from Safina, but if Williams can get money and have a driver who's banging in the consistent performances like, like Nicholas, then, hey, jobs are good. The goal is to find a really fast driver with a lot of money. <laughs> That's always the challenge. But are we forgetting? I mean, it's very easy to do this when you've had a race where a lot has happened everywhere and uh, championship thing, contenders are knocked out of the race and, and the usual people don't win. Uh, and, uh, you know, to forget teams like Alpha Tauri when they perform and they and they end up sort of where you expected them to be. But I mean, Yuki and Pierre Gasly did a good job this weekend, didn't they? I mean, they did a fantastic job. It just, they weren't seem to be involved in the action anywhere. They seem to manage to get to the end without too much drama. Can you remember anything? And I think Pierre, <laughs> well, about their races, no, because they, they sort of went under the radar, didn't they? But Pierre Gasly, hugely impressive in qualifying to line up fifth. You know, in an Alpha Tauri. That was an extraordinary performance. Um, and I think he was really frustrated after the race because the cards just didn't fall for him. He didn't get the rub of the green and in the way that Ocon did, for example. But they didn't get knocked out the first corner either. So, yeah, it, sometimes you get an ordinary result out of an extraordinary race. Oh, you can gauge how happy that team is with how their race has gone by how long team principal Franz Tost hangs around after the race. If he makes a very swift exit, invariably he's very angry and it's just getting out of there because he doesn't want to talk to anyone. Uh, yesterday, hanging around, wanting to ha up for a chat with anyone. So, so happy team boss. Yeah. Happy friends. Good. Oh, that's good. Another guy, Damon, who I think we need to mention on this week's pod is Mick Schumacher. Running in the points. Ah, now we, we, you're right. I'm glad you remember that because actually a bit of a feisty driver is Mick. You know, and, and he banging, banging wheels with, well, Max gave him a bit of a biff, didn't he? Coming out of turn three, um, moved over on him. And, and he'd already lost his barge boards on the right-hand side. And then he kind of gave Mick a, a bit of a nudge going into turn four. Uh, and uh, but, but Mick putting up a, a very strong defence with George Russell, I thought, his move around the outside 
of Mick was incredibly brave. He gave no quarter at all. So he, he might be in a slower car, but he's, he's determined to fight. So we'll be keen to see how he develops. Well, he said it really helped his development, you know, running with Hamilton and Verstappen and not being intimidated. He fought, but not too hard. He knew when his time was up and had to let them go. Really fun. Really fun to watch him. Yeah, good. Got a bit of limelight. And it's, it's, it's good that he, he you know, they, they do say in acting that there's no small parts, only small actors. So, you know, if you're in a team that's not up the front, it's still an opportunity. Well, as George Russell has proved consistently over the last three years, and, and Mick is starting to do at Haas, isn't he? Yeah, I, th- I think, I'm, I can't honestly say I'm not impressed by, by Mick. I think he's showing his strength and I think he's showing ability and I think he's also showing he's a bit of a fighter as well. So it will be good to see him in a more competitive car in the future. On the subject of Schumacher's, I suppose this comes under the subject of any other business, DH. But uh, did you notice that there's a, well, did you notice? I know you contributed, but they um, they announced the Schumacher documentary that's coming out on Netflix in September. Right. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. So uh, I did contribute, but I don't remember. They might have cut me out completely. I'll find out. <laughs> it does happen. A cutting room floor, you know. <laughs> I think you were integral to his story, weren't you? Though? So I'm sure yeah. they haven't done that. Uh, but anyway, so that's something that's coming out uh, in September. So we can look forward to that while we're talking all things Schumacher. And any other business for you, DH? Well, we haven't really talked about what's coming up because after this little break, we've got three races on the trot coming up and we've got the Dutch Grand Prix. What sort of, I mean, Lewis didn't get, you know, even when he was on the podium, there was still a little bit of that old booing, wasn't there, going on, which is a little bit bit upsetting. Oh, God, it's so tedious. It really was yeah. tedious. What's the hell? Why is it? But Because actually when he was racing and he was uh, making his way through the field and got up to, to third, there was cheers. You could hear the cheers in the crowd. So um, I don't know what's happening there. I don't think the booing was malicious. I think it was just crowd right. nonsense. T- tired. They were tired. Tired and emotional. <laughs> they were, they yeah. were tired, tired of cheering. <laughs> but I, I don't think it was malicious, just that directly in front of Park Ferme and the podium was the Orange Army. They had their own grandstand and it was orange. So anything they said or did was what Lewis could hear more than anything else when he was in, in that bit of the pit lane. As I said, I don't think it was malicious. I think they were just, it was just nonsense really and just a bit disappointing. And But my goodness, what is it going to be like What's it going to be like at Zandvoort? Dutch fans, you know, be nice to Lewis, will you? Because, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's doing what he's good at and uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be good because um, we've got, we got a lot of listeners in Holland. I we know do. They listen to us. Yeah. They're, they're good sports. They're good sports, the Dutch. Yeah. It'll be great to have a Dutch Grand Prix, the first ever Dutch Grand Prix for how many years? But anyway, we're going to get onto that because we'll come back with another F1 Nation podcast before that all kicks off after the summer break, won't we? Yeah, we will. Oh, gosh. So, yes, all good vibes coming from the Hungarian Grand Prix. An extraordinary race. Esteban Ocon, first Grand Prix win. All the best win their first races in Hungary, don't they, Damon? Well, I'm one of them, of course, now, Esteban Ocon. He's, uh, he's part of my club. Uh, Fernando Alonso, Jensen Button. Any more? Thierry Bootsen, 1990? That- no, I checked. It was, the, it was his third Grand Prix win. Oh. Yeah, his first was in oh. Canada. And, of course, Nigel won there quite a lot. But... Lewis didn't get his 100th. He's going to have to wait. But um, are we going to get Natalie back? She's finished her holidays. So she... I think we're getting Natalie back. back. Definitely um, for our next 
what I would call proper show, which is going to be ahead of the Belgian Grand Prix. But we're all going to take a little bit of a holiday for the next few weeks. We're going to give you your fix of F1 Nation, though. We're going to do some Ask Damon episodes. So what you have to do is you have to make a voice note, record it and send it to askdamonhill at gmail.com. And we will consider playing it and I will consider answering it. And we'll all be back on the Tuesday before the Belgian Grand Prix. Tom, you've worked hard. Go and get a rest. Go and get a break. What are you going to do with yourself? I'm going to head to the airport in a minute, fly home from Hungary, and yeah, I'm not going anywhere. It must be miserable being married to me because the last thing I want to do on a holiday is go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, wife, if you're listening. Go home, Tom. See your wife. You've done a good job. Right, and we're going to nail this um, audio boom F1 production message, okay? Damon Hill is now going to deliver the line inch perfect like it's a qualifying lap at the hungara ring in 1993 here we go he's starting now yeah he's crossing the line now to begin his quality will you shut up (laughs) (laughs) this has been f1 nation in produced by formula one in association with audio boom is that the one that's the one and that all that remains to be said is thank you very much for listening and we'll be back soon we're getting there